and why should I let race limit me? If you go in and thinking that you have to work twice as somebody based on race, you've already put yourself into an inferior position. You've elevated somebody because of their, their race. And you are, in many ways, you're actually, creating, you're actually creating a platform where you already feel like an imposter. And I refuse to allow my journey to be dictated by someone else's narrative because of a social construct. I'm aware of the constructs and how it affects me, but I'm not going to allow it to limit my journey. I'm going to be aware of it, but I'm not going to allow it to limit my journey. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I have this picture of my two older daughters that I keep thinking about. It was taken on a very snowy day here in Boulder about four months ago. My four-year-old Emmy and my two-year-old Camille are bundled up from head to toe in their pink and purple snow gear, and they're standing on a newly shoveled driveway. The weight of the freshly fallen snow is bending the bushes behind them and blanketing the yard. Now, the angle of the picture is a little weird, and they are far enough away that you can't clearly see their faces, but you can see that they're holding hands. Something about that picture makes me so emotional. I see these tiny, tiny, visually insignificant beings who mean everything to me, looking like specks of dust in the big, big world. And I see that they are alone, but together. It makes me think about the fact that I will not be here for them forever. There will be moments of pain that I won't be here for, of victories and joys that I won't be here for. But they'll always have each other, always. And they will have an opportunity to step into this world standing on my shoulders, my wife's shoulders, my work, my lessons, my beliefs, just like I was able to do with my parents. They will have and be part of my legacy. So what is the legacy I want to leave them? I think when people think about legacy, myself included, they often go to accomplishments or possessions or the people they'll leave behind. Well, what about the legacy of who you are, who you were, the ways you treated others or how you helped or served? or the lessons you learned or taught. When I look at that picture of my daughters, I feel a tremendous responsibility to them, not just to provide for them, but to show them the beliefs, the mindsets, the memories that I want to leave them. And perhaps more importantly, what do I want to model for them? As I have gone deeper in my own introspective journey, I realize just how much I owe to my parents. The very best of me and the very worst of me are often things I can attribute to them. And I am and will be forever grateful to them. And I can see, too, that so much of what they pass to me are things they learned from their parents and their parents before them, and so on. As the saying goes, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And I see, too, the tremendous responsibility I have to my kids to pass on what I was gifted by my parents, but perhaps even more importantly, to hold tightly those things that are no longer of value in my life and in the world. The things that hold me back, the things that cause me pain, that cause pain to those I love, or that prevent me from showing up in my fullness. Now, I'll never be able to stop my kids from having their own personally challenging behaviors and limiting beliefs. But what I can do, and what I am doing, is to do my best to ensure I don't give them mine. This is my work, my greatest work, to ensure they start in their own way. This is my legacy. David McQueen, a leadership coach and founder of Legacy 71, is an inspirational man who is doing amazing work in the world. 
As a black man based in London of Pan-African and Caribbean descent, he recognizes the importance, power, and the significance of his own legacy. When he thinks about legacy, he not only recognizes those who came before him, who had tremendous courage, who stood up despite the odds and biases stacked against them, to take risks that ultimately helped David have the life he has. But he also thinks about the world and the life his kids will be living into, and his role and how they will live it. In this conversation, David and Jerry explore David's work as a coach, a teacher, as a founder of Legacy 71, and what ultimately drives him to do the work that he does. Legacy. Legacy is about appreciating, owning, and acknowledging all those who have come before you, recognizing the role and responsibility you have in doing the same for those who will come after you. This conversation will leave you with a powerful question. What is your legacy? Are you looking to stay up to date on all things Reboot? Join our mailing list to receive updates on the podcast, including our most recent episodes, corresponding blog posts, and updates on exclusive Reboot services and events. Head to reboot.io slash sign up. Hey, David, what a delight it is to open up my screen and see my friend David. Pleasure to be here, Jerry. Pleasure. Yeah. Pleasure. Uh, before we jump in, uh, why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself to our audience? Okay. Uh, my name is David McQueen. I'm an almost 50-year-old <laughs> gentleman living... You're a young man. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm good. I feel, I feel good. <laughs> but um, born and raised in London, uh, married to a beautiful woman, uh, been with her for 30 years, uh, married for 23 the father of two beautiful daughters, um, Lauren and Rihanna. And um, I always will always prioritize my family when anybody asks me anything. So those are the first things that um, mm-hmm. come out. Uh, but I'm also um, what I call a leadership enthusiast. I love working with people around leadership. I have a company called Narratively where I teach people, a leader specifically, how to communicate. But the, the thing I'd really love to talk to you today about is the new um, startup I have called Legacy 71 which is effectively a startup ecosystem for black founders in the UK who have started their own tech companies. Yeah, so I, I, I'm glad you went right to Legacy 71 because, you know, we'll put some context into this. Um, I guess we've been stalking each other on Twitter for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we finally met, uh, what, in November, I think, in, yes. uh, in, London. in London. And it was like two very old friends yes. refinding each other. Definitely. Does Definitely. that feel right? One of my best memories of 2018, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. And so, and then, uh, you know, I don't remember exactly when I, I tracked Legacy 71, but when I saw your announcement, which, um, you know, and I, I heard you describe it as a startup ecosystem for black founders. That's correct. Um, and I, um, I just remember saying to myself, uh, yeah, so let's let's get it on. Let's like, how do we help, yes. right? And I, I am I am equally fascinated in understanding the whys of yep. uh, the whys w h y s um, of of legacy seventy one and really really this sort of sense of, of purpose. So so I'll jump back. I'll hand it back to you and just just tell tell us what legacy seventy one is. Tell us what Legacy 71 is aiming to do, and then we'll talk about 
why is it called that? And even more like, why is it needed? So what, what is it? So it's a, I call it a startup ecosystem. I originally called it an incubator, but I think it's more than that. Mm. And um, the, the essential bit is, is that within the tech ecosystem, there's been a lot of emphasis on coding. Mm. There's been a lot of emphasis on um, these big unicorns mm. that make the headlines and what have you. Uh, and I wanted to come at it from a different angle. What could I do within my specific community? So being of Caribbean descent or Pat, the wider narrative of Pan-African descent, I wanted to see how I can plug a gap that wasn't there. And so I created three kind of pillars. One was around community. So how could we get fellow founders often who didn't know how to either play the game or even start a company in this space? The second one was around courses. So how could I provide education to make sure that those founders, instead of just getting excited about what's happening on the front page of Fortune, TechCrunch, or all the other ones, which which obviously tend to highlight the, uh, the outliers, how can they build a sustainable business? And then the third pillar was around capital. How could we ensure that uh, an underrepresented niche in the tech um, startup space could have access to capital in the way that so many others were able to get capital? And on those three pillars, those are the those are the core themes around um, Legacy Seventy One for Black Tech founders. And when I say Black Tech founders, I should say in the board, they're one of the founders must at least have a controlling interest. One of them must be a black founder. So it could be a black and a white guy, but at least one of them must be a, a, a controlling um, founder and representative. And in terms of your second question of in where I want it to go, you know, I want it to be realistically, I want it to be a multi million pound company. And I'm not, and I think it should be very important here, I'm not interested in creating unicorns. I have no interest. I don't even believe that unicorns exist. And mm -hmm. if they do, it's way outside of my remit. So as <laughs> my logo is an elephant, I believe in creating elephants because elephants mm -hmm. create community. Mm -hmm. They are large, sturdy animals who are wise, who represent loyalty and royalty and power. Um, and, you know, I, I, again without stretching the metaphor too far, often when an elephant is left on its own, people try to stoke them and try to steal the ivory. And my whole concept around legacy is trying to protect that ivory, trying to protect that IP and create that community and, and get people to see that it's not an either or, it's a both and. Mm. It, it's, it's, uh, I've got a bazillion questions. Fire away, fire. But, but um, I just want to talk about the logo, if, perhaps. Yes. See, I saw the, the elephant and I was, uh, I felt moved. And uh, the meaning I projected into it was um, to reach back into uh, African roots. Yeah. Um, it, was I seeing something that wasn't there? Yes. No, no, you were seeing it. It's an African elephant. Because obviously there's two. There's the Indian elephant, there's right. the African elephant. And the African right. elephant has the larger ears and the ears are actually shaped like the continent of Africa. Right. Um, and so, yes, it is a spiritual connection. Um, the, the elephant motif is very popular across Pan-African and Sub-Saharan African cultures. And there was something about those traditions that spoke to me. Mm. Uh, and again, I wanted to be able to create something that when you saw the visual image, Mm. It made you go, ah, oh, what's that about? What's that connection to? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and as you rightly saw, many people look at it and they go, okay, I actually get it. Because they mm -hmm. see the black background, mm -hmm. they see the gold line, and then they go, okay, I actually mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. and, and so you'll see it's, the, it's a black, it's a black um, backlay, mm. uh, background. 
Um, and again, there is that sense of royalty and calm. And then there's the gold overlay where you see the print of the logo. And that's about being able to create wealth. Unashamedly, I, I, I do believe when I look at the racial gaps between uh, of, of, of blacks in the diaspora, especially in the UK, the US or, 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 or larger um, countries where we aren't the, um, the, the native or, or the, the, the dominant um, population, hmm. is um, we, there is a massive wealth gap. And for me, technology is one of the few ways I believe we can actually close that wealth gap. And so that's symbolic in the whole logo of saying we want to create wealth, but we want to do it collaboratively and we want to do it within the sense of a community. Mm. Well, and that speaks to the other phrase, which um, I'm not as um, familiar with here in the States, but this notion of a, a pan-African diaspora, yeah. um, which... You know, as as I sort of sit with all of the words, uh, it just it just feels um, powerful and correct, mm. true, in this the way a wheel gets trued. But um, so legacy seventy one, mm-hmm. um, if you're successful, it sounds like uh, you'll you'll have supported a number of entrepreneurial teams, many of whom have Pan African roots. Yes. And, and are there, will they be UK based only, or will they be, um, uh, tell, tell me about your regional reach. What are you looking yeah. to do? So the, the interesting thing about this, uh, Jerry, I, so I love, I love maths. I love, mm-hmm. and when I say Pan-Africa, I love reading about the history, um, the history of Africa before, you know, the richest man in the world. A lot of people look at Jeff Bezos, they look at Bill mm-hmm. Gates and what have you, but the richest man in the world by a long mile was a guy called Musa Mansa. And he was the king of, uh, I think it was, I'd say the, I think it was about the 14 or 1500s. Mm. But they, if they, when they take his wealth and accumulate it up to modern day standards, he's like miles ahead of even Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and the, there was something about the, he had his caravan and he would move from one part of Mali across to Mecca and, you know, and, and he, when he went, his presence would actually affect the economy because he carried gold and where, whatever islands and sorry countries he went through it would actually affect that economy. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, even though we want to start it in the UK, for me, it's all we're doing is we want to tap into other ecosystems. Mm. And there are some of the templates that I've learned have been from US ecosystems. I have had a lot of um, individuals reach out to me uh, across what I called the diaspora in the in Europe, in France, Germany. And I've had communities from Botswana, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Ghana, Ivory Coast. They've also reached and said, you know what? We'd really like to use the model that you're using to create this tech ecosystem. And what I didn't even realize is like in a lot of uh, countries like South Africa or Kenya or Mozambique or what have you, there is a certain hierarchy of where the wealth goes and a lot of it is still in white hands. Mm-hmm. And then you take it down another level and you've got um, South Asian or Lebanese. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, more recently, you have Chinese. And so when you still filter down the indigenous or, or, or notable homegrown African wealth often isn't in the hands of the local people. And, and my idea was to be able to create a model that can be, it's, it's open. It's mm. something I make no bones about people taking the model that we use to work mm. on it themselves. And so the idea is that even though I start it here and I'm primarily focusing on UK, 
my dream is to be able to tap into the ecosystems across the diaspora. But also, to be honest, I, I want all humans to be able to look at what we're doing. And instead of glorifying the, the, the big ones that get these massive IPOs, which I think is good, and I think there's a place for that, you know, there's a place for the big companies. But I would rather sit down, I would rather go to my grave knowing that rather than seeking after those $2 billion companies and getting really excited about that and getting my buyout, I would rather know that, oh my God, I was part and parcel of a journey or a story that created maybe a hundred companies that made a million in turnover, which mm. means that there are more people eating from the table and breaking bread. That mm. for me, Jerry, is that. And that's why I say elephants more than unicorns. Mm. That is what I really, when, when this is all done and my, I'm gone and I'm just a memory, that's what I want to be left in my, that's what my legacy will be. Hence the mm. word legacy as well. I, I, I really uh, resonate with that. And, and I think, at some point we may have shared that um, among the many different activities that I, the, the too many activities I get involved with um, uh, is that I spend time mentoring and supporting entrepreneurs in uh, the Tibetan region of China. Yeah. And um, because uh, income disparity shows up there as well, where folks are living on, uh, less than a dollar a day, less than a U.S. dollar a day, mm-hmm. and uh, families. And um, from what I have come to understand, uh, when you can lift a family out of that sub $1 a day level through the, uh, you said technology, for me, it's a broader notion of entrepreneurship. Yep. When, when you can lift folks there, then what you're doing is <coughs> multiplier effect. And, and now it's easy for me in my privileged position to look at a third world part of the world and sort of say, hey, here's something uh, that could be really helpful. Um, and, it, and it has that, that overtone of, um, you know, a white man reaching into help, mm-hmm. which is always interesting and challenging and complex. Yeah. But uh, what strikes me is that you're talking about supporting entrepreneurs, I imagine, it in London, primarily, initially. Yeah. And, and, uh, and of course, I mean, this isn't really um, a question. It's really an observation. And, of course, the needs of good entrepreneurial support systems yes. um, exist even in the wealthiest of communities in the world, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and part of the education piece for me, and which is what, what the, the courses with why it's such a key pillar is if, if I was to put my hand on my heart and speak to all the accelerator and incubator programs that I have experienced, either as a pitch coach or gone in and done some leadership coaching and talk, spoken to individuals, the piece that I think is missing more than anything else is leadership, is strong leadership. People are so excited about building a product and rolling it out. And, and getting, you know, uh, getting to market and getting these massive funding rounds. And no one actually sits down and go, okay, let's really talk about self-awareness. Mm. What does it actually look like when you go and you race ahead and you get to 150 people and all of a sudden you've got to start thinking about your hiring practices mm-hmm. or your diversity and equality policy mm-hmm. or your, the way you manage talent or the fact mm. that as co-founders, it may be brilliant now, but mm. you may get to a point where you actually have to deal with conflict. So for me, 
that leadership piece, and I think I might have mentioned it at the beginning about being a leadership enthusiast, I don't believe that you can really drive sustainable stuff where people have a sense of well-being, um, mm. be that mental or physical, as well as being able to contribute to an economy unless you've really got an understanding of where that leadership piece comes from. Right. So I, my, my next set of questions really come from a place of, uh, I want to acknowledge again, as I, as I said before, you know, I, I, I hit, as Warren Buffett describes, the genetic lottery, right? Yeah. I am a white male of privilege, and the privilege came regardless of whatever poverty I may have grown up in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the privilege was manifested in the fact that I was able to work my way through that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I swim in that. Yes. It, it's, it, and so it makes it hard for me to see uh, things. So I try. Mm-hmm. And so the questions are going to, you know, really come from that place. And I want to acknowledge that I do not want to do that thing that white people do, which mm-hmm. is ask black people to speak for all black people. Yeah. <laughs> I, tell you, I tell you, I can only speak for David McQueen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, that said, uh, from, from David McQueen's seat. Yes. What are some of the challenges that may or may not be particularly, um, as, as folks seek to be the leaders they want to be, yes. what are the challenges that may be uh, particularly prevalent in the, the pan-African entrepreneurial community? Okay. There's, some are internal and some are external. Um, I, I, I'll give you a chorus that's probably very familiar in the, in the diaspora where we are taught from quite young that we've got to work twice as hard as white people in order to be able to succeed. Mm. Um, in my late teens, I poured a, a whole load of hot water on that. And ever since I've been getting hassle from friends who tell me that I, I am living in cuckoo land because I don't believe that. And, and one of the reasons why I rejected that is because I, I entered the world of work and I realized I was working twice as hard as some people who were in color. And, and they, were, they were more superior in terms of position than I am. I'm like, what is this notion? This person has no sense of working twice as hard uh, right. as this person. And, this, and, and, and why should I let race limit me? And, and what I realized is that if, you, if you're in that notion, you're always going to feel inferior. If you feel that you've got to work twice as hard as somebody because of their race, you're always going to feel inferior and you've got to do this, ex- go this extra mile, do this extra bit just to match up with somebody because of race. Okay, and I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you to pause on that one because I think, you, no, I think you just said something super powerful. Okay. okay. Could you say that again? So I was saying that I, I, I believe that if you, yeah. if, you, if you go in and thinking that you have to work twice as somebody based on race, you've already put yourself into an inferior position. You've elevated somebody because of their, um, their race. Um, and you are, in, in, many, in many ways, you're actually, creating, you're actually creating a platform where you already feel like an imposter. And I refuse to right. allow my journey to be dictated by someone else's narrative because of a social construct, which is race, which is real, let's keep it real. Yep. But I'm not going to let the limitations of that. And I, I, I'm, aware of the, I'm aware of the constructs and how it affects me. I know if I drive down the road, I'm going to be, you and I drive down the road, I'm going to be, um, there's a higher chance of me being stopped, maybe five, six, seven times. Um, I know that uh, there are certain things that will happen in that space, but I'm not going to allow it to limit my journey. I'm going to be aware of it, 
but I'm not going to allow it to limit my journey. And so that narrative I had to challenge. And I always say it when I'm working with my entrepreneurs, they were like, oh, you know, well, if I was white and I went to Oxford and I, and I go, yeah, that's very true. But at the end of the day, my mum and dad came to the UK without getting access to credit cards, with very limited access to mortgages. And they both managed to buy a house. Why? Because collaboratively in the community, they all pool their money together. They couldn't get it from the bank. So they pooled their money together. They bought houses, they bought cars, and they were able to teach lessons around not only surviving, but even more important, thriving. Mm. And, and for me, part of the message within this ecosystem is to recognize when you're building your company, build a company to thrive, not to survive. Because if you're surviving, you're always worrying, you really haven't thought about the systems. And don't get me wrong, entrepreneurialism is a, is a, is a, is a very mad, I think you have to be crazy to do this anyway. I think it's a, a real roller coaster. But the bigger picture is, is that in me setting up Legacy 71, it's bigger than me. Mm. And because it's bigger than me, it's about thriving and not surviving. And I guess the, 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 if, I, if I can come to your point really quickly, I feel like I'm going on forever. But if I can come to your point really quickly about privilege, there's, there's, there's two ways I look at it. Mm. Um, I'm very privileged. My name is David McQueen. I walk into a room and no one's seen me, that door opens, okay? <laughs> Someone hasn't seen me before there. But then I'm also privileged in that I've done some work with Richard Branson. Mm. That's opened a whole other door altogether. I've worked with major banks and technology companies. And I realize that privilege just allows me to go into spaces that a lot of other people can't. Mm. So when I go there, I take young black men and women with me. And because of my passion for education, I take young Asian women with me, young white people with me as well. Because I realized that just even having my name or even the way that I speak has allowed me to go into certain spaces. But I also say on the flip side, with the concept or the notion that you spoke about with white privilege also becomes a white burden. And let me explain it this way. There's a writer in the UK called Akala, and he kind of elaborates on this. He wrote a book called Natives. I'll, I'll share it with you so we can share it. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, really. And there's a powerful thing in there. And, and, and the notion is that so many people focus on white privilege mm. and the pathway that it sets for people regardless of class. And let's, let's, let's take, we take that on board. But the flip side is, is that the burden is, is that many people who are aware of white privilege will then think that because of being white, that they will be able to get into doors or do certain things because of the notion of their skin. And that's unreal. So then what actually happens is you go to go and run a race and the fastest guy on the pitch is, is the fastest guy in the race is a black guy, or you go to go and do NFL or basketball, or, or you go and set up a company and, and, and you want to get into film and you feel by the notion of your, your skin that you could be go into Hollywood and you can sail through there you know, easily. And then when you get there, you realize, well, no, you're behind Tyler Perry and Oprah and Ava DuVernay. And all of a sudden that notion of privilege gets pushed back because the burden is that you have an expectation, which isn't a reality. Mm. And so for me, part of the conversation while we're dealing with race is let's be honest about this. Some structures have been set up to make people feel inferior or superior around their race. My thing is, is look, if that's what you want to believe, I'm happy for you. But while I'm out here building an ecosystem, I want to be aware of that, but not allow that race conversation to be the primary conversation at the front of your mind. Mm. Let's build stuff that can encourage wealth and well-being and recognize we're going to have hiccups along the way. Mm. Recognize that some people are going to be quite tri tribal. Recognize, and I'll put it out there, that some of these larger companies actually do not care about diversity and inclusion. Mm. That's it. I have no interest, Jerry, in decolonizing Silicon Valley. 
because I'm too focused on building a village in London. Mm. Oh God, I love what you just said. And, you know, if I can reflect back to you, it's, it, you know, uh, the message I'm hearing and I'm, I'm perhaps merging it with my own perceptions, but what I'm taking from what you're saying, David, um, feels such, so resonant with so much of what we talk about at Reboot anyway, which is we're going to look at tough spaces. We're going to yep. look at those issues, but we're not going to dwell on them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right. So what we're going to do, because, because if we ignore those tough issues, they actually have this uh, deep, deep power to shape the conversation in unconscious ways. Yes. But, um, but you know, so if I'm, if I, if I were to approach our conversation mm-hmm. without acknowledging the differences yep. between us, or if you were to approach this conversation and, uh, and not acknowledge uh, the intersectionality of your existence, you are a black man, but you are a man. Yes. Right. Who, who is able to move in ways that perhaps another black man may not be able to move because of language or because of names. Um, if we don't acknowledge that, mm. we actually give it more power. Yes. To, to, to shape our communities and our organizations in ways that are destructive to the individual humans. Yes. Am I seeing that correctly? Totally, totally. And, and, uh, and I'm, I haven't got the energy for people to see me as a threat. Oh God, I love that line. <laughs> I don't, I don't have, yeah, I, I, I don't have it. If, yeah. And if, and you know, and I've said to people, if you, even when I set this up, I said, if you see me as a threat, maybe you need to have a, 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 an internal dialogue with yourself as to why you see me as a threat. And let's break it down. Let's break it down. If, if, if by me saying that I am going to empower more black founders and tech companies to create wealth, to create jobs, um, which will be across the board. And, you know, people across all races will be hired. And, and, and as a result, we will find ways of creating um, new solutions for individuals from a different lens. Mm. Okay. Um, but at the same time, what we're doing is we're creating these vehicles that will put more tax into the system. So you can get all upset with me as you want, but when I've got five or 10 people coming out of my incubator and they're creating jobs and that tax is being paid and you walk down the road and God forbid you trip on a, on a pavement, and I know the health system is slightly different in America, <laughs> but you, you trip on a pavement here in the UK and ambulance will come along, put you in the back of the ambulance and they will take you to the hospital. We don't charge insurance like you do in America, right? <laughs> right. You have, we have the benefit of the doubt that our national health system for good or, or bad will take you to the hospital and then if you're a citizen, you'll be treated. I sleep well knowing that I'm part of a system that has helped people to create wealth so we can pay those taxes that can go into the community that can make sure that if anything untoward happened to you, that you're covered. So if I'm a threat, I'm a threat because you haven't challenged the internal dialogue. And from the time you challenge that internal dialogue, you realize I'm actually your friend, not a threat. Yes, I may be focusing on a specific niche. And as I always say to people here is, look, when I tell you that I'm pro-black, it doesn't mean that I'm anti-white right. and it's very important to know the difference. Yeah. Uh, and, and what I'm, I'm hearing the phrase that I just wrote down is, is something that we've been working with, which is this notion of communities of belonging. Yes. And, and, you know, in your, in your, in your metaphorical story about uh, the national health system, 
And, and I don't, again, you know, it's a comp to, to, to live this human life is complicated and complex. Yes. yes. Um, but I think that, um, what I'm hearing you speak to is the sense that if you trip and fall on the street of London, on the streets mm-hmm. of London, mm-hmm. you feel enough belonging to know that you will be cared for. There you go. And that is not something that's available to the vast majority of humans on the planet. Totally. And if we set that as an interesting metaphorical goal of how do we create systems of belonging, Mm. um, recognizing and working with the pieces within our, our ecosystems that Mm. work against that, then I think what we can do is we can, we can, we can, um, uh, turn the, the experiences that we all have of race into a means for deeper connection. Yes. Rather than than that uh, that piece that uh, you know um, that fragile guilt that white people can feel, or the sense of a burden yes. that then twists and warps things yes. uh, in awful ways. And 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 I think it, you may remember when we had our breakfast. I, I made this quote to you. I said, "Look, I'm I'm not interested in white guilt." The only times I want white guilt are when I have to apply for a loan or a mortgage. <laughs> That's the only time I want it. And if you want to do it, then I, I'm totally fine. But, you know, the, the reality is, is I know my business that I have to approach high net worths, angel investors, VCs, across the whole um, private equity spectrum. I have to have conversations with individuals of white um, Asian, black, all across the spectrum. I have to go there because the only color that I know, and I've learned this in a long way, when you're in a room and you can bring a certain narrative, the only color that matters to a lot of people, you say in America, is green. It's the color of money. Because yeah. what people are looking for is what's that strong business model. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I've realized, and this really, really drives me, Jerry, is that, look, back in the day, I used to be a club promoter. One of the things I, even when we first started out, it was, it was more invitation only than, than, than anything. So it was almost like an elite thing. Uh, and over time, it became wider. We, we opened it out wider. It was no, the, the beta stage was like, almost like so many other products, you have that beta stage and the excitement that's causing and everybody wants to be there. And it really made me, when I was thinking about Legacy 71, it really made me think about that, that there are individuals who couldn't come to our club because they didn't even know where the club was. Hmm. But if you did know where the club was, you got into the club. And if you knew who we were, there was more chance of you being able to get into the VIP section. Mm. And if you could get into the VIP section, there was even more chance of you being able to have a conversation with the DJ to start talking about the tracks you'd like to listen to over the night. Mm. And I think about this the same way with the startup ecosystem. Some people want to be part of the system, but they don't know where the club is. Mm. And then when they get to the club, they don't know what the language is to actually even pass the bouncer. But once you know that language, you get inside the club. And once you're inside the club, you get familiar with what's happening. You get to dance. Mm. But sometimes because you don't know who is around, you're not dancing like no one's watching. You're dancing because you're really conscious about it. But then the more you get familiar, the more you dance like no one's watching. And then you understand, hold on a minute, there's a VIP section. Mm. I can actually talk to the DJ about my songs. And 
that metaphor for me is the startup person coming in, having an understanding about the language of customer growth and product development and marketing and metrics and, and being able to do an actual great pitch deck and then being able to make your way up and even being able to say, do you know, I don't really like that DJ because his values don't align with the songs that I want. So I'm going to sit this one out. But when another DJ comes up, I can play the song and I'm going to dance like no one's watching because I know he aligns with me or she aligns with me and I'm going to dance like no one's watching. And for me, that's the essence of Legacy 71. I want people to know where those clubs are, but I also want them to know how to get in. I, does, I, that, does that make I, sense? I, oh, my, my goodness. That, that metaphor is so perfect and so powerful. And can I, can I share back with you something yes. that, I, that I've been sitting on for a few minutes, which I think may be also an undercurrent in here. Okay. And that is the story of your parents arriving in London. Yes. And not being able to get a credit card or a mortgage, but yes. turning to the community to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. And, and I was so powerful. And I, I feel a thread of that. Yes. It's yeah. like, well, fuck it. Yeah. We'll make our own club. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, we'll find a way. Yes. And because that's why we're, was... we're going to dance. Yes. And, and that's why I was saying to you, Jerry, I, I, I honestly as much as I love the innovation that come, has come out of Silicon Valley, I don't care to decolonize it. I don't care to pick up sticks and move to one of the most expensive places in the country to go and live so I can rub shoulders with people who don't even want to be around me. I don't right. care about that. Right. Because where is home for me is London. It's familiar territory. And yes, it's one of the largest tech ecosystems in, in Europe and has similar issues because when America sneezes, you know, England catches a cold. But there is something about being able to go, do you know what? Let me create my own narrative here. You know, in the UK, we've had so many different forms of underground music and, and underground music that was created because it was never played on mainstream. Mm. You know, the equivalent of what you have as hip hop in America is a, is a music style that we have in the UK called grime. Mm. And grime was a real rebellious, underground, angry, black poetic you know, sometimes I like hip hop a bit too misogynistic for my liking, but it was that voice. It was that poetry. It was the, 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 the staccato over these dark, angry beats, but it was expression. Mm. Mm. It's become mainstream mm. because it was able to move its way through. And a lot of these artists performed with artists like Drake and Adele and, and all the other, you know, Beyonce and all the big mainstream artists. All of a sudden they were able to pick up to it. In the same way across West Africa, you have Afrobeats, which was something that was, you know, High Life, which was, you know, Fela Kuti many years ago. Those were the only artists you really knew. And then all of a sudden, Beyonce started using songs with Afrobeats. And again, Drake got onto it. And Kanye West and all these other popular artists in the hip-hop space picked up onto this genre. And what I've realized is often when individuals don't get an opportunity to sit at certain tables, they start to make their own. And mm -hmm. for me, that's what legacy is about. And uh, this, the system that I'm talking about with my parents, it's called Pardner. It's uh, they pronounce it partner. That's the uh, that's the kind of like colloquialism from the uh, Caribbean tongue. But it means partner, and wow. effectively they would. It's it's what would be now known as the the, the English the polite English term is revolving credits association. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but effectively, it meant that you would have. 10, 20 people, a bit like an angel syndicate, who would put their money together and they would pull their money together and they go right. There's ten of us, so effectively we need ten thousand pounds to put down on a house. Month one, we'll all get together. And person one, you get your 10,000. But make sure you put in for the other months that come along. Month two, person two gets 10,000. So by the end of the year, we've raised 100,000 between 10 people. 
And 10 people have got onto the property ladder because we collectively put the money together to get deposits for a house. Mm. And that for me is incredible way of thriving as opposed to surviving because mm. then people were like, well, hold on a minute. How did they get that money if they didn't go through the system that I set up, which mm-hmm. should be credit cards and mortgages. And mm. especially if I'm using my racial bias or class bias, it's going to be at a premium. Hold mm. on. How, how come they were able to do that? Mm. And that for me is the essence of saying, look, you know, we've got a model that says, I'm happy to go and talk to angels and VCs, but if you don't want to get involved, we'll equity crowdfund. We'll get a thousand people to put in a thousand pounds. We'll raise a million pounds. You'll want to talk to us in due time. Don't worry about that. Let's do things slightly differently. And so, as you said, there's definitely a thread of my parents saying how we were able to lift each other up and get into that swell. It was group economics. It was collaborative economics. And there are replications of it in the Indian community, the West African community, and, and certain parts of the world. I think it's called Stockwell in South Africa, Susu in West Africa, uh, in Pakistan and India, because when they traveled, that was the way they created um, collaborative economics. Well, and, and, and that for me is important. And, and not, I think they also created their own table. Yes. And, and, you know, creating your own club and creating your own table um, because you, you know, there's, there's, there's the need. Um, I'm going to ask a question that is more leading than I think any of the other questions I've asked. So I'm going to lead the witness a little bit because I kind of know the answer to my question, but I'm I, expecting I, it. <laughs> um, the, the piece of the name that we have actually not talked about is 71. Yes. Tell, t- tell me what 71 means. Um, I love numbers. I think there is a significance in numbers. I, the, the, there are certain elements of numerology that I, I think, although it might seem quite kooky on the one hand, I think it's quite powerful. So to, to, to give you a sense, my, um, I, I define as agnostic, well, agnostic, I say, because I, I let people go and Google that for themselves, but I define as agnostic in, in that I, I respect and revere spirituality across the board, but I don't tie myself to one God or one specific belief. Um, I'm, uh, my, my guiding light is namaste. The God in me reflects and sees the God in you. That's my principle. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so when I was looking around, I, a friend of mine came around and she had a tattoo on her wrist and it was a seven and a colon and a one. And I was like, that's really powerful because I remember being a Christian. The world was created in seven days and you go through that seven day cycle and then one, you start all over again. I thought that was quite powerful. And for some unknown reason, I just Googled 71 and I was like, what does that number mean? And it came up. So in, in Judaism, it's a number of wisdom. Uh, in Christianity, it's a number of the Holy Spirit. Mm. In numerology, it's the number for business continuity. Mm. And uh, my dad turned 71 last year. Mm. And it's just like all these things aligned. And I went, wow. And I sat down there and I wrote it and I said, you know what? Uh, as you know me, I'm a man of story. I love narratives. I love being able to create intrigue around, you know, when, when you're talking to individuals. And I thought, you know what? When, when, they, when someone sees a name, I don't know, McQueen and Sons, they're like, okay, it's the McQueen family thing. Or when they see, you know, um, I don't, Berkshire Hathaway, I'm just kind of like going with it. Now. You know, you look at these lovely names. But if somebody sees Legacy 71, they're going to be like, hmm, that's a nice name. What, what does that mean? And I thought, right, good. Because that's the starting point for me to tell you about our values about continuity, about wisdom, about spiritual connection and legacy in that it's going to be collaborative. We're looking to make this thing grow where, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this thing in, in, in tech, in the tech space 
where everybody's looking for, you know, people go and pitch and the first thing they want to know is when you're going to exit. Mm. And I go, okay, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a lot of these guys who we really revere, like Jeff Bezos, like Bill Gates, like Elon Musk, like uh, Zuckerberg, or however we look at them politically, all these guys have been figureheads and totems at their organ, Jack Welch, you name them. These guys have been figureheads at the beginning of their, or at the top of their organizations because they wanted to create legacy. So rather than being, and don't get me wrong, I think if somebody comes along and sees your technology and they give you a 200 million pound check and that could be life-changing for you, take the money and run. Mm-hmm. As long as you can give it back for me. That's my thinking. Um, but legacy is about what can I give to my children mm-hmm. and to their children that can be not only something physical in terms of a vehicle, but a mindset. Mm-hmm. I want my children to know that there is abundance Mm. and there is abundance in this world. And even though there is a finite amount of physical resources in terms of love, in terms of community, in terms of humanness, there is abundance. And for me, this vehicle, you know, yeah, it's a business because I love doing business. But if, if I have to say the thing that resonates most with me is that humanity about legacy, that you can be nice and make money. You can be nice and impact the world. And you can also teach that to your children and to your children's children so that they can take it to the next level. That, yeah. That's what drives me. Well, uh, I, I feel the truth of what you've just said. I feel it in my bones. And if I can reflect back um, something else that I see um, that I think is evident, um, but not maybe not top of mind is, um, you know, you, you are... Um, you speak about the legacy going forward and you uh, briefly touched upon, but movingly touched upon the fact that your father turned 71. Mm-hmm. Um, what I see too is the legacy that stretches back behind you. Mm-hmm. The ancestors mm-hmm. who are, have taught you and live within you, you know um, I'll give credit where credit is due I saw Springsteen on Broadway uh, uh, a few uh, months ago, and there's this very moving section where he talks about the difference between ghosts and ancestors. Mm. And ghosts uh, have unfinished business and they haunt you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but ancestors stand behind you, perhaps with their hands on your back. Wow, wow. And, you know, when you speak of your daughters, it's so moving. You know, before we started recording, you showed me a picture of your, you and your daughters and they looked at you, but, but, do you, but understand you are their elder and I am the, my children's elder and my ancestors, now I'm going to cry. My ancestors stand behind me with their hands on my shoulders and they they're not pushing, but saying we are here. And so that legacy stretches both ways forward to the future, but back towards the past. Mm. And there's wisdom in that elephant. There's wisdom in that word. And so that's what I see. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I, I, I made the storyteller speechless. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I honestly would say, I am not, I have heard Jerry do these things time and time again. I am not. There are going to be no tears coming from my eyes. And you left it to. <laughs> and now I've gone. But do you know what? They're tears of joy. 
They're tears of joy because mm. they, often in a very patriarchal world, we forget how powerful the family is shaped by the matriarch, being that backbone, being the carer, being the nurturer. And, and often there is a dominant narrative within the tech space of this real patriarchal, you know, Sun Tzu warrior dude. But when men have gone to the war, it's always the women who has been hold, holding the family. And for me, being able to tap into that femininity as well as the masculinity part of my side and being able to say that for both men and women, there are equal sides we can share. And there are people who have been before us who have paved the way. Man, that, oh my God, you have no idea. You have no idea how much, and that's why I'm crying because mm-hmm. that is, that has taken me to another place altogether. Mm-hmm. It, it, that we are, we are not limited by our past, but it does sure as hell help to shape our future. Amen, brother. Amen. So I, I want to just close with just this, there was nothing I didn't add to the narrative. I just reflected back what you were already telling me. Yes. And maybe, maybe your grandmother was behind you, one or two of them. And they were speaking over your shoulder to me, maybe mm-hmm. in that transpersonal way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, their hands are on your shoulders. And this work that you're doing feels super important, my friend. Well, I want to thank you so much for the time together. I mean, every single time we're together, it just feels like we go deeper. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash signup. So you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Being the CEO of a startup is hard. It can be lonely with long hours and never-ending, unforgiving to-do lists. When do you take time to step back and take a good, hard look at how things are going? When do you take time to step back and take a good, hard look at how you are showing up as a leader? Are you ready for a transformational weekend to change how you experience leadership? This April 25th through 28th, reboot and refresh what it means to be a CEO. Over this long weekend, the Reboot team will help you establish greater awareness of your personal leadership habits by creating a customized strategy for being the leader you want to be, the leader you are capable of being, all while building a trusted network of peers you can rely on. Applications are open through March 15th, so go to reboot.io slash April Bootcamp to apply and secure your spot.